I don't know about you guys, but I'm glad that we have all the good people in the church and we've left all the bad people outside. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't that what we say sometimes when we say something about our children or something? We say, oh, well, I just wish they'd get in church. Because once they get in church, they're going to be good people, aren't they? That's not necessarily true, is it? No, the reality of it all is, is that you realize that if our nation is judged, it is going to be because of us, not the people on the outside right now. (laughs) Now, that may shock you a little bit. It will be because of us. And I think that what we're going to say is that we've been good. We see what our problem is, is that we're starting to define good by the people that we are considering bad. And the reason we call them bad is because uh, they have things that we don't do, or they do things or they don't do things that we do. They do that sort of thing, and they don't realize that uh, we're good and they're bad. Oh, there's some things that they do that are good, but we don't want to, let's ignore that right now. And so we compare ourselves with those people who don't know the Lord, and we say that we're good. And you know, here's the situation. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. But I will tell you, you need to become sensitive. You need to become sensitive to the own sins in your own life. Not pointing at those people on the outside. Don't just look out there and say, you know, look at those nasty people. Look what they're doing in, in, what, uh, in whatever city. Look at the way that they're acting there and going and saying, those are the bad people and we are the good people. We've got to be a people who spend time with the Lord. And we'll know that we're insensitive when we are the ones who are just afraid we're going to get caught. Not whether we've been holy. Not if we've been righteous. And so when we pray for our nation, which is the topic today, you realize we're praying for ourselves in reality. I'm going to read a scripture that you know so well that you probably have memorized it sometime way back when. And you could probably recite it to me. But here's what has happened. I have seen this happen over and over. I've seen this preached again and again and again. And you know what? Nothing happens. But I'm going to give it one more shot. 2 Chronicles 7.13 says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Yeah, we've heard that a lot, haven't we? We've heard that a lot, and what has happened so many times is is that we've come around and we said, you know what, if we could just get those people out there to humble themselves and pray. That's not who this is to. You look at this very carefully. This says, if my people, and what has happened here is, is there has been judgment sent onto the land. See, God will send judgment when the characteristic of a nation becomes one that turns from God, turns away from God. And I believe that many of us have thought that America has done that a long time ago. And so we find that God is giving us ample time for repentance. See, it's funny to me, though, that you know what will happen when we do find the judgment, if the judgment does come? The unrepentant people will say he gave us no time at all. 
I'm going to tell you right now, he's given us the time to repent. See, God is staying his judgment for the sake of a few. When Abraham pled for Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, God said he would not destroy them if he could find 10 righteous people. It says in Genesis eighteen thirty-two. then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I'll speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, God said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Now, here's the story, folks. If you're thinking that God will not judge our nation because of 10, the circumstances have changed already. You see, we have the testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection. These people did not have that. The people of the Old Testament did not have the continual presence of the Holy Spirit either. They did not, they, they, we have a greater responsibility because we have seen the promised Messiah that came to us. And our own judgment, judgment of what other people ought to do is going to come back to us in reverse. Understand what we do today. We judge the people of the past by our own standards today. You look and watch what happens in the news and what they do. We judge the people of the past by our own standards. We did not live one moment in their shoes. We did not live one moment in their time as well. They had a limited knowledge. They had a different culture. And the knowledge and the culture, their culture will not save us. What I'm trying to say to you, if you're waiting for us to get down to 10 people, 10 righteous people in this country, and hoping God will not judge this country because of 10, you are being absolutely misled. For God judges his people before he judges the people surrounding them. Scripture has that very clearly. This judgment is concerning his people. It speaks of the things that God will do among his people. Now, here's what I want to tell you something, folks, and it may shock you. His people are not the United States. It's not simply because we're Americans. And sometimes we get in our patriotism and we think that, you know, that we are the same as God's people. Now, God has shown grace on this country because of the faith of his, of his people. But that does not mean that this nation belongs to him in the sense like Israel belongs to God. See, God has a special relationship with Israel. And I believe it's because of Moses' prayer. I'll get to that in just a second. Very quickly, let's understand who God's people are. God chose Israel to make a people for himself. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And they became people who followed him. Understand, it wasn't because how they were born. It was because they followed him. God's people have always been the people who have followed him. And so he lets those in the desert that were under age 20 years of age, when they got out into the desert and they're wandering in the desert, he let everybody that was 20 years of age and younger to live. And he had all of those people were to die that were there. And that was so he could make a people that would truly follow him. His goal is that he was going to produce the Messiah and he was continue to be with his people in a new covenant. This is what God was doing. It is in, and, it, and it was there that the Jews who followed Jesus were, became his people. And the Gentiles were grafted in 
because we followed Jesus. Do you understand? It's not because we were chosen in some other way. We, were, we, we walked along with God in this and we became his people. Understand, we are God's people right now. But when God was going to destroy the people out in the wilderness, Moses prayed that they would not be destroyed. And, and he said, don't do it for your own sake, God, for your own honor, for your own name. And God relented on destroying the people. The Jews have a special place. They will be evangelized, but not one of them will go to heaven without Jesus. Don't misunderstand, or we don't understand the New Testament whatsoever. We don't understand how they would witness to the Jews. And we don't understand what they would do with with the Jews. You don't understand what it is. God's people are the people that follow after him. We are God's people because of that. But it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This statement is for believers to realize that when judgment begins, it begins with us. Not those people that we're calling evil on the outside. It begins with us. See, it points to the whole household of God. Meaning all of those who would say, I follow him. I follow Jesus. So what have we done to deserve judgment, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. We've sought preachers to tell us what we want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You see, we cannot deny that there are large groups of Christians who have flocked to hear preachers who are telling them what they want to hear. And before we throw a few rocks at those people, I know because I have talked with many of you, you're watching these people on TV yourselves. And you want to hear the things that you want to hear. And you flock around these people. These people will tell them that they will always be healed on everything that happens. They tell them that God wants them to to be rich and how they can be rich. They tell them how how they will be great and honored on the earth. These preachers are getting rich and living large. I'll tell you what's going on. And people, God's people, are following after them. These people, you know, it's amazing to me. These preachers are preaching Exactly what Jesus was offered in the wilderness when he, came, when he fasted for the 40 days, what Satan offered him. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He said, this is how you'll feel better. You make that bread, all you've got to do is take those stones and turn them into bread. Again, you, this is how you can, be, you can be rich, rich, I'll make you rich as you can be, Satan says to him. And I tell you what, I'll have everybody bow down to you. You see, that was the thing that was going on there. And that is exactly what is being preached. And Christians are flocking to hear these people by the droves. Secondly, we have listened to deceitful spirits. 
First Timothy chapter four, verse one says, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Some of the preachers that are doing this other sort of stuff are preaching incredible heresies. You see, they're, they're, I heard one. One who went to a Southern Baptist seminary, by the way. I don't know if you want to call him Southern Baptist, but he went to one and he said, he said that God is, that heaven's vacant right now and, and God's only here on earth in the Holy Spirit. In fact, what I actually heard him say, he said that when Jesus was on his way up to heaven, he did a U-turn and came back down as the Holy Spirit. That's called modalism. That is a heresy from centuries ago. And this is something that thousands of people, I mean thousands of people, crowd into that church every Sunday and all of the, of the satellite places that they have to hear this preacher. And so I've heard preachers say things like, you have the power to speak your blessings into existence. Well, why do you need God anymore if that's the case? See, these preachers deny the need for the gospel of Jesus because some of them don't even ever bring up sin. In fact, they'll even be proud of the fact that they did not bring up sin. These preachers have become more motivational speakers rather than people who address the gospel. And they are drawing millions right now. Millions of people that are not following the gospel. A third, we have a form of godliness, but deny its power. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such people as these. You realize that's us. You can look on that list and you can find that there are believers, believers who are, they don't do all of them, But they certainly do some of those things that are on there. And in that process of doing some of those things, they have denied the power of the gospel to change us. Do you realize we were to be changed? We're not supposed to be just like the rest of the world. See, the power of the gospel is to change our lives, not just to get us to heaven someday. We should be a different people. We don't just need to get our bumper stickers and wear our Christian t-shirts and go to church and proclaim our own righteousness when we are not walking with the Lord ourselves. For the Lord will not walk with people who are participating in these things. So, we face judgment. We face judgment. What are we to do? Well, I'm going to imagine I've got a sermon here on Pray for a Nation. We pray. Pray for what? Pray for humility. Pray for humility. God said that we should humble ourselves. Now, this is difficult. I want you to hear this. This is very difficult. Generally, people who have been humbled, humble themselves. 
Humility, though, I understand, is not putting yourself down. Putting yourself down and bringing the attention on yourself by putting yourself down is just as bad as taking and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm better than anybody else. In fact, what we can say is, is we can say, Lord, I want to thank you that you made me humble and not like the rest of the people. That's not humility in that. So pray that you will be humbled. This is not hoping for disasters. But it is to realize that you and I did not hang the moon and the stars. We are not God. We cannot call upon God to do as we please all of the time. You see, that is realizing that we are absolutely nothing. I have to realize every Sunday, you know what I say? God, I have no message if you're not there. I have no message. There is no message here. And so... You know, we pray to be humbled. Paul was humbled by a thorn in the flesh. He was humbled by that. Whatever it was, and we don't know what it was, but he thought it was hindering him from preaching the gospel. He saw it as a weakness. Maybe even others saw it as a weakness. But what did he say of this being humbled? He said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at those words that are there. What does he say that he delights in? Weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties. See, we will not be able to walk with God without humility. We will certainly not be able to walk with God without humility. If you're thinking that, God, come with me because I'm going to show you how things ought to be. That is not the way that it's ever going to be a walk with God. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, And walk humbly with your God. You know, you cannot walk with someone and not walk with them at the same time. (laughs) If you're walking with them, you're walking with them. If you're not walking with them, you're not walking with them. And you can't be fickle with God either. I've seen, you know, I've heard many people tell me about how they've been humbled by an experience. It it might have been an illness or some kind of tragedy. They may have come to the end of themselves. It could be even like I I had a back surgery or something like this. But humility is necessary, but it is not brokenness. I'm going to talk to you about brokenness in a minute. See, recently I looked up a pretty successful pastor. He had written several books. His church had grown, I mean, tremendously. And he resigned from his church. And he's not in church now. He's not in church at all. He speaks to groups, but he pretty much has adapted his version of the Bible for the people that he talks to. And he gives them what the world wants to hear. His pride overtook him. You know, here's the thing, folks. I always wanted to be one of those preachers that had one of those mega churches. I wanted to be the one that, you know, there were thousands and all of that. I mean, this is just pure old pride, folks. But you know what I've realized? I mean, not to be proud of this, but the fact is, I said to God when I was preparing this message, I said, God, I couldn't have handled that. I couldn't have handled that. I thank you that you kept me where I am. Not because you're a bad people, because you're wonderful. But, but, but you didn't give me that mega church. 
with my name up in lights. See, if success causes an abandonment with a walk with God, I don't want it. Tell you the truth, I don't want it. You know, failure is not absolutely necessary for humility, but success is very susceptible to pride. Now, humility is necessary for the next two steps I'm going to give you. What you want to pray? Pray to see God's face. And to seek his face is to be in his presence. Sin is an estrangement that does not sever our relationship with the Lord, but it certainly puts a distance in it. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Remember the deal? He left his father because of his sin. He got out there on his own. He didn't change his relationship with his father. He was still his father's son. But the truth is he was not close to his father at all. The father didn't move. Only the son did. Confession is at the heart of seeking the face of the Lord. Realize this. Confession is a word that is homo logeo in the verse I'm about to read. It means homo means same and logeo means word. Saying the same words that God says. It is an agreement with God. What I have done was wrong. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Righteousness allows us to be right where we should be. Righteousness breaks down the barrier that we put between God. We didn't lose our salvation and we did not lose our relationship with God. But just like the prodigal didn't lose that relationship, we have certainly put a distance between us and our God. And it wasn't until the prodigal repented, turned around and went back to his father and to confess that he restored that relationship. See, only those who have been in his presence, and I don't know how many of you have known this. Some of you were so young when you you first came to know the Lord, you may not realize this. But those of you who have been in the presence of the Lord, you know whether or not you're in the presence of the Lord now. You know because there's this distance between you and him. And there shouldn't be, that shouldn't be there at all. Did you realize that the two hardest words to say to those we have been close to are, I'm sorry. I read that on an internet post. It was a psych- psychology deal. And I thought, isn't that true? Isn't it true that those two words, I'm sorry, are the two hardest words to people that we've been close to? But think of all the healing that could be if those two words were said. Think of the healing that could be even between a husband and a wife, or two friends, or two neighbors, if I'm sorry was simply said. Think of that. And think of that relationship that you have with the Lord. You see, when, when we have a, when a tiff with somebody else, something that happens, it goes, we go on, but sometimes it lingers behind. It gets buried sometimes, but it's still there. And we think that, that, you know, it's always the responsibility of the one who is offended to speak up. Do you realize? But if the offender doesn't know that he's done anything wrong, yes, it is the responsibility of the, of the offended to say something. But when the offender knows that there's a separation, there's something that's between that and the other person. It's the responsibility of the offender to go and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, one of the most famous confessions 
in the Bible is from King David. David has committed his adultery. He's had Uriah killed. He's done all the things that he shouldn't have done. And he was going to go on. He was just going to bury it. Let it go on. Nathan was sent by God to confront David. And what does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. Did you think that Nathan had to point it out to him? No. He knew he'd done it. He was just going to let it go on by. Just let it pass on by. And David wrote Psalm 51. And you ought to read it sometime. Because this is the words that he would say about his sin. Pray then also. Pray to be broken. Pray to be broken. Now, brokenness is two things. It is grieving over your sin and repentance of that sin. Understand those two things have to come in there. See, you will not truly repent if you've not grieved over your sin. That's what it is to be broken. It's not to be humbled. And people get that mixed up all the time. But being broken, as David was broken, he grieved over his sin. He grieved over it. You see, otherwise, let me tell you what will happen. If you're not grieved over your sin, you can confess and confess and confess and nothing's going to change. You're going to do it again and again. The magnitude of your sin must grip you. You see, there must be a regret that goes on. I have met people who have been unfaithful to their spouses. And I don't have a magic eye. I can't tell, you know, exactly whether a person is repentant or not. But because they often, they say the right words. But you know what I, I see sometimes? They don't grieve over it. They need to grieve over it. I remember talking to one man and he talked about committing adultery. Uh, to the sin against his wife, in fact. He talked about it like it was getting a math problem wrong. He said the right words. Oh, it was wrong. It's wrong. Oh, yes, I know it was wrong. But you see, great grief aids the repentance to bring it into memory so that you say, I, it was so horrible, I don't want to do it again. I want to make sure that I don't ever do this again. Now, this prayer that I'm telling you, this prayer must be personal. It is not so, well, I'll wait till everybody else prays this prayer, and then I'll join them in this. See, you cannot pray for revival for someone else and see results. You see, if my people means that you do it, and if no one else joins you, you still do it. And what we find is, is that my people will be the ones who are going to follow him again. It means that we will take responsibility, maybe even for some sins that we didn't commit. When I read those things of the three things that I mentioned to you, maybe you said, well, you know what? I, I didn't do those things. I did, this, I, I did this one, but I didn't do the other two. It doesn't matter. We're part of my people. And we need to confess that. But here's the situation. It is also national and it gets personal results as well. What does it say in the scripture? The prayer will be heard. The sin will be forgiven. The land will be healed. And it means that we aren't pointing our fingers to those people on the outside anymore. We're looking at ourselves. We humble ourselves. We confess our sins corporately as Christians. And we turn specifically away from those sins 
and we seek God's face. Now, you know, I've been praying, I've been preaching on prayer for the last several weeks. I'll tell you what I believe. This prayer may be the most important one of all. Pray with me.